what if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. From the Doc Project, this is Caravan. Part 1. It's 2015 in Warren Hudson, New York, about 160 kilometers north of Manhattan up the Hudson River. I'm about 30 meters in the air, harnessed into the rigging of a wooden tall ship. And suddenly, I see three uniformed adults walking through the gate, down the dock, and across the gangway onto the deck directly below me. I don't know who they are, but they look like government agents. And when you're with Caravan, as a general rule, government agents are not your friends. I hide in the crow's nest, periodically peeking down till I see them leave, then give it another five minutes just to be sure they're gone, and then climb down to see what's happened. I, I, I mean, like they don't mess around. That's me, Trevor, sitting in the common room in the cramped belly of the wooden tall ship I call home. Trevor, if they were going to... Okay, I, I don't want to argue with you. You know, the, I think the... I'm talking to Paul and Nans. Well, you gotta do what you gotta do. Two people who, at the time, were a mix of gods, mentors, bosses, and parents to me. And we're arguing because we're trying to decide what I should do next. I mean, I think you're... I think you're panicking and uh, needlessly, so... I, I think so I, I have, have a right to do it. Well, you do, but I'm just expressing my opinion. I know, and I totally, and I feel awful and torn about it, and it's not what I want to be doing at all. Just a nightmare. The last thing I want to do is leave this boat. That moment hasn't let me go for the past five years. A moment when I was staring into the faces of the people I most admired, People I'd spent years of my life with, traveling across the world, people who showed me a way of living that I'd never thought possible, and saying to them, I think I need to run. Yeah. And it's all a big mess. Is there something you've always wanted to do? Some dream that you hold on to, like an escape hatch from your real life? But something always seems to stop you from taking that leap? Trevor Campbell, the guy you just met, this is the story of his leap. One that took him to places he never would have seen, with people he never would have met. A leap that showed him an unimaginable way of living, before it landed him in the crow's nest of a wooden tall ship hiding out from government agents. It's been five years since that moment. And now, Trevor is trying to figure out what the hell happened. 
I'm AC Rowe, and this is Caravan from the Doc Project. This is our first ever serialized podcast. Three episodes, all of them available right now, following Trevor Campbell as he followed his dream of joining Caravan. And what happened next? Since 1997, a tall ship named the Amara Z has been sailing around the world. The ship is home to the legendary Canadian theater troupe known as the Caravan Stage Company. The Amara Z travels from port to port, carrying actors and acrobats and musicians who put on experimental political theater for anyone who wants to watch. It's a ship and a theater company, but it's also a whole different way of life. A world that exists with its own rulebook. And the people who seek out Caravan, people like Trevor, usually they're looking for something they can't find anywhere else. It just feels warm and it feels like home. Um, it feels like you can occupy more space. It feels like your dreams matter, that you matter. It feels like you're a part of something much larger than you could imagine. It feels like you're in the water and outside the water and in the sun and, you know, watching the sun at the same time. For me, the best part of the caravan are the people where everybody was together for the same aim. As well as feeling like you are on a pirate ship, you know, you you feel like you're in an old novel or something. You don't feel like you're in the harsh reality of the world. You're in you're in the harsh reality of a very different world. <laughs> Today, the story of Caravan, the legendary Canadian theater experiment, and Trevor Campbell, whose dream was to join them. This is a story about what happens after you run away with the circus. But it's a long and strange journey that gets us to that point. So, let's start at the beginning. First up, part one, the Bonnie and Clyde of Canadian theatre. Trevor will take it from here. It was 2005, ten years before that night in the crow's nest. I just graduated from Sheridan College's music theater program and moved to Toronto, where I was going to be a Broadway sensation, baby. My first professional show out of school was called Fearless, basically a musical version of the 80s movie The Breakfast Club. I was cast as Josh, the affable bookworm, and I was ecstatic. No, I totally remember you. Well, it was for um, Stage Kids. and uh, That's right. This is Heather Broughton, the director of the show. I remember thinking, oh my gosh, his eyes are the window to his soul. Like, he can't help it. And I empathize and am attracted to that. I'd felt like theater school had conditioned us to become these best foot forward, shiny versions of ourselves. But Heather was just real. I always picture her the same way. Page boy flat cap black banker's vest, and blonde hair pulled back into these two little firecracker pigtails. 
Heather had a wild laugh and a seemingly unflappable cool. She was so free. I was her polar opposite. I was a 21-year-old queer kid still learning to walk in his own shoes and desperate for approval. Like, no exaggeration, I would barely take a sip of water without asking for permission. Heather hit me like a ton of bricks. I remember giving you a note, like a redirect in the audition, and you were like, thank you. Thank you for, for the feedback. <laughs> and, but you were young. Like, we used to call you little, little Trevi Campbell. <laughs> like, oh. Yeah. I liked direction because I really didn't trust myself. But I loved being a part of a show. Out in the world, I'm just Trevor, some long-limbed kid with an unruly haircut. But when you make theater, you enter into a special kind of pact. When we shut the door to the rehearsal room, it doesn't matter who we really are. We get to become somebody else. And we all have an undeniable part to play. We need each other. Basically, nothing felt more important to me. Well, we, we call it, of course, DTR, down to rehearse. I was so DTR. And it was in that headspace, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, desperate to be told what to do and how to do it, that Heather told me about Caravan. Can you describe Caravan in one sentence? Ooh. Uh, what would I say? It's like a ship of lost souls wandering to find themselves and theater at the same time. It was too fantastic to be real, but apparently Heather had spent a few years living on a wooden tall ship with a group called Caravan Stage Company. For short, Caravan. And as any caravaner will tell you, it's not easy to describe. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, 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 caravan is a uh, the caravan is a ragtag family community of kind of anybody's guess traveling bunch of theater pirates. A little bit what you make of it, and a lot of rolling with the punches. And the creative masterminds behind this operation: Paul Kirby and Adriana Kelder. Paul and Nons. Paul and Nons are some of the sweetest, most brilliant people that I know. Um, Just thinking about Paul and Nons, I feel like I feel sort of a tingling in my body. I met Paul, who was uh, kind of the P.T. Barnum of the Caravan Theater, and and he struck me as a man who liked people so much, exceedingly much, and he also obviously loved theater. I remember having a feeling that they were extremely powerful. I felt a weight to being in Paul's presence. Um, he he does feel like a wizard to me. And they had the, the funny shoes, orthopedic. With the giant springs on the back of them. Well, they look like a crazy old hippie couple doing their thing, really. Caravan felt like a secret society with this powerful, mystical couple, Paul and Nons, at its helm. After Heather first told me about it, for the next three years, I heard its name whispered throughout the Canadian theatre community. And every now and then, I'd stumble across someone who had a connection to the ship themselves, usually through a friend of a friend of a friend. 
Each new voice added another detail to the story, often completely contradicting something else. And after a while, the picture I ended up with in my head was something like this. On caravan, you'd live below deck in bunks stacked three to a room tight as sardines. You'd work for free, hustling for food and helping to rig and sail the ship along the coast. And when the sun went down, you perform wild pieces of original theater from the deck of the ship for the people on shore, and as the last notes rang out, you'd cast off those heavy ropes and sail into the night, smoking cigarettes in the moonlight with stage makeup still smeared on your face. You'd fight, you'd dance, you'd fall in love, you'd have an undeniable part to play. You'd need each other. I mean, Heather made it sound like the best place on earth. My first night watch, there's three watches, at least when I was there, red, white, and blue. And so if you're traveling by sail ship, you do eight to 12, 12 to four, four to eight kind of thing. And you do a 24 hour cycle. I used to love the midnight to 4 a.m. because like what a mystical time on the water. And so we'd been sleeping and I remember waking up and there's coffee brewing. And then I came up and like the moon was full and then, you know, everybody's, drinking coffee and eating cookies and and the, the waves are crashing and I looked and I said this is the most dramatic thing that I've ever seen in my life. Oh, the drama. I wanted all of that. But I was still determined to be a serious actor. So, I put the dream in a drawer and stuck it out in Toronto. And for the next seven years, while I was getting gigs in film and theater, albeit with a lot of time serving and bartending in between, I found myself feeling increasingly stuck. I wasn't booking the jobs I wanted. There was no Broadway. But I got by. Things were fine. I started having dreams about places I'd never been. I remember one where I was in Paris. It was nighttime and I was walking next to the Seine, electric light dancing on the water, that kind of thing. And then something awful happened. I got mugged or attacked or something, I don't remember. And when I fell into the water, I woke up. And I remember lying in bed and being so disappointed that it hadn't been real. Because I just wanted something to happen. Shh, hear that? It's the sound of my life drying like cement. By the end of my 20s, I was lost. It felt like something had chewed into my psyche and slow motion sucked up my career aspirations, my romantic relationship, and my sense of identity. I looked at the world around me and I just didn't fit. So I was going through, I don't know how much you knew this, but I was going through a pretty like existential bleak time. Yeah. Uh, like, yeah. Yeah, I felt it. Something was happening to you that you, you were no longer that open empath person that I knew. But then... In one of life's strange twists of fate, in the thick of that dark time, Heather sent me an email. The founders of Caravan Stage Company, Paul and Nons, were casting for their new season. It had been a few years since Heather had first told me her story of Caravan, but 
I'd never forgotten it. I sent Caravan a carefully crafted email, and I got sent back a document called the Caravan Humandate, a breakdown of what life on the ship entails to weed out ill-suited applicants. It warned how we'd be living in close quarters, with a bucket for a toilet, no money, and working very, very hard. We'd be putting together a whole show by ourselves, making everything by hand. It wasn't for everyone. My devotion wasn't swayed. Finally, I received the following response from Paul and Nons. Trevor, are you in Toronto over the next week? Let us know and we will set up an appointment for you to do an audition for us. I remember sitting at my computer and thinking, this could change everything. Your life is on fire, and this is the last chance to get out before you go down in flames. This wasn't just my chance to convince Polynons that I was caravan material, but to convince myself that it didn't matter that I couldn't fit into the world that I knew, because there was another world waiting for me somewhere else. I just had to make the right impression. Because these two... They've seen it all. There's a certain, I think, contentedness that, that you meet in, in people who picked a very unusual, idiosyncratic lifestyle and have managed to stick with it all these years. This is Louis. Um, I'm, my name is Louis Restelli, a lifelong Montrealer and co-founder and current director of Archive Montreal. It's a nonprofit organization that both preserves and promotes uh, independent art scene in Montreal. Louis is the closest thing I have to an academic Polynons expert. He's been documenting their early work for years, so he's going to help me tell this part of the story. In 2015, he talked to Paul Anons for the Archive Montreal blog. Uh, it took a while for us to get the interviews organized the first time around, the boat and all of that. Paul and Nons are creative geniuses. The story of their lives, it reads like a fantasy novel. Lives dedicated at all costs to art with a purpose. So, let's start at the beginning. I'm going to ask you to take a little trip with me to Montreal in the 60s. Long before Caravan, Paul and Nans were activists and had a radical newspaper in Montreal. Paul Kirby is originally from British Columbia and came to Montreal in 1966 to join a graduate program in psychology at McGill. In his early 20s, he already had big ideas. Grad school seemed like it was more talk than action, so Paul left to join Montreal's burgeoning community of radical activists. One of the issues that united them was action against the war in Vietnam. Paul wanted to take a group to demonstrate in North Vietnam. He sent a letter about his peace brigade to Noam Chomsky, hoping for some insight from the like-minded left-wing activist. Chomsky advised that they would just make themselves an easy target, so instead, on Chomsky's advice, Paul decided to protest the war in a different way. Helping to start the Gandhi House, a place for draft dodgers to, uh, uh, to come and, and, and orient themselves in the city. So, you've got Paul, this precocious savant-type character who wants to light some fires, and in comes Adriana Kelder. Nans was born in Holland, but emigrated to Montreal's West Island as a child. When she was growing up there, uh, St. John's Boulevard, which is kind of the main street of the West Island of Montreal, was still a uh, kind of a country road. There were a lot of stables and horses, and so she had a passion of riding. Nans was an animal lover and also an artist. 
She enrolled in Montreal's École de Beaux-Arts, and while studying painting and illustration, her older brother Robert started writing for Paul Kirby's alternative newspaper, called Logos. A lot of the draft dodgers who came through Gandhi House, designers, writers, and photographers, would end up contributing to Logos, with Paul at the center. Clearly, you know, this entire generation uh, did not really see anything in the media that reflected their interests and preoccupations, and so a lot of folks uh, uh, pulled their resources together to put out magazines and newspapers at the time. Logos was a movement, now with around 25 members, and its headquarters, called Logos House, was a duplex off Saint Laurent with an office in the basement and living space up top. Life and work blurred together, as it always would for Paul and Nans, and they released their first issue in the fall of 1967. Nans began contributing to Logos as a designer, and for one famous issue, became its canvas too. They included a, a photo of Adriana at, I believe, 19 or so. Uh, the cover of the magazine logos was a nude photo of Adriana, painted the, the logos logo and issue number and graphics were, were literally painted on her body. And they sort of, not photoshopped in, but whatever technique you used at the time, she's seen holding a little policeman in her hand and blowing him a kiss. They got in trouble for that one two counts of publishing obscene material, and by then they had also had dozens of counts uh, outstanding for selling a newspaper without a license on the street. But as a radical newspaper, brushes with the law were par for the course for Logos. Though they did have to pay multiple fines for selling a newspaper without a license, most of the charges never stuck. That is, until one particular issue. November 1968. Picture a very busy newspaper stand in front of a metro station. It's rush hour, people throttle by, and then someone bursts through the crowd with this hot-off-the-press cover story. Mayor shot by dope-crazed hippie. Mayor shot by dope-crazed hippie. The headline was splashed over a picture of Montreal's mayor, Jean Drapeau, on the front page of what appeared to be the Montreal Gazette. Except... The mayor hadn't been shot. And the paper wasn't the Montreal Gazette. It was Logos, with a satirical back page made to look like the front page of the Montreal Gazette and with a fake headline implying that the mayor had been shot. As a joke, of course. Uh, and this was inspired by um, an actual uh, sensational story that uh, one of the Logos uh, members had seen. Uh, something about, you know, someone being shot by a dope-crazed hippie. I mean, this was the 60s. There were a lot of these kinds of qualifications by uh, uh, more old-school, mainstream uh, media about these freakish, long-haired folks out there. But the powers that be didn't get the joke. In fact, they were furious. The mayor, the police, and the Gazette. They, they took this as a battle royale. They really, really wanted to make sure that these hippies didn't, you know, do any such thing again in the future. The cops issued an all-points bulletin and sent armed guards and squad cars to raid the Logos house and arrest anyone on site. But Paul and Nans couldn't be found. Major outlets ran headlines like, Paul Kirby and his lover, Adriana Kelder, are in hiding. Instantly, they went from a pair of alternative artists to Bonnie and Clyde. The case went to trial about a year after the issues with the fake Gazette cover went out, with most of the charges aimed at Paul. But the Logos team had backup. Most of the proper journalists, writers, editors, publishers, uh, radio producers, all sorts of folks, uh, took the side of Logos. This was a major free speech issue. 
Sympathetic lawyers offered their work pro bono, and even John Lennon, yes, that John Lennon, who was a friend of a friend, sent them film reels of the Magical Mystery Tour to play as a fundraiser, along with a note that read, Paul and Nons in Logos. Good luck. Stay out of jail. Your friend, John. Not ones for hero worship, they smiled appreciatively and threw the note in the fire. But even a beetle in their corner wasn't enough. Paul was sentenced to two years of probation and required to put up a peace bond. The terms of the peace bond would make publishing logos almost impossible and, given Paul and Nanza's personal and political views, would mean the always looming risk of jail. It was at that point that they decided to, uh, to take off. Nans was pregnant and wanted to leave town before she gave birth, so they packed up their era-appropriate Volkswagen bus and fled west. But these two were only getting started. It was in Western Canada that the project that would guide the rest of their lives would take shape, Caravan Stage Company. The beginnings of the company that I was preparing to audition for, and where all my hopes were now riding. I walk into the audition room, this big, empty rehearsal space in an industrial part of North Toronto, to find Paul and Nans sitting on folding chairs. It's not that I've been picturing them as full-blown pirates, per se, but they seem cut and pasted into the wrong picture, like wizards in civilian clothes. Paul is more outwardly gregarious, with a warm, welcoming smile, while Nan seems quieter more observant, a striking counterpoint to her wild shocks of silver hair. As for me, my theater training has instilled a lot of audition protocol. I am on for this whole conversation. Razzle-dazzle, lights, camera, action. My hands are likely clasped together in front of my body. I'm probably wearing a tie. I nod aggressively in response to everything they say. Down to rehearse, right? After some brief introductions, they asked me to show them what I had prepared. My go-to pieces at the time were a monologue about a passive-aggressive man throwing a fit in a diner, and for my song, Stevie Wonders for Once in My Life, as interpreted by a scraggly white guy in his 20s. As per audition protocol, I don't make eye contact at all but rather stare just above their heads and belt into the abyss. After I finish, I'm finally free to make eye contact, and Paul and Nan's look unmoved. After what feels like a very long pause, Nan's asks me if I have anything a little softer. Racking my brain, I come up with another favorite. Oh, um, yeah, of course, I would like to sing A Case of You by Joni Mitchell. Okay? Ready. I complete the ballad and return my wistful gaze to Paul and Nans. Another long pause. Then, suddenly, Paul gets a little twinkle in his eye and asks, Have you read any Camus? I hadn't. I had only the vaguest idea of who Camus was. 
Camus, I've since found out, is a French outlaw and author known for absurdist and existential works like The Stranger, in which the protagonist kills a man for seemingly no reason other than the fact that he's irritated by the weather. Uh, no, I reply, embarrassed, making a mental note to head straight to the library after the audition. Yet another pause. And then we're done. I don't remember exactly how it ended, but I remember thinking, that was bad. You're not what they're looking for. You should have cried. But a few days later, I received an email from Nans. Paul and I liked your audition pieces and your determination. They told me they'd contact me by the new year with their casting decision. Oh, and they also threw in a few recommendations from Camus' catalog. I replayed my audition over and over again in my head throughout the winter, scolding myself for all my bad choices. Why had I worn a tie to meet theater pirates? Why had I never read Camus? I'd come in with my best people-pleasing attitude, but it didn't work, because I didn't really know what these people were looking for. And more to the point, I got the impression that, unlike most of the people I knew in the theater, Paul and Anz didn't like being catered to. They could smell BS a mile away. AC here. Coming up after the break, we go back to the caravan of 40 years ago, before the tall ship, when it was a traveling theater, but one that stuck to land. From CBC Podcasts and The Fifth Estate, Brainwashed is a multi-part investigation into the CIA's experiments in mind control. From the Cold War and MK Ultra to the so-called War on Terror, we learn about a psychiatrist who used his patients as human guinea pigs and what happens when the military and medicine collide. Listen to Brainwashed on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. After escaping Montreal and leaving Logos and the drama surrounding it behind, Paul and Nans were ready for their next big adventure. And their provocative politics took a new form. Caravan, the horse and buggy ears. Long before Caravan set sail, it was a land-based touring stage company. The whole thing moving across the country in covered wagons. Campfires, slow days on horseback, performing under a big top tent to crowds in the mountains and prairies to anyone who would come. The shows were highly political and truly fantastic, with fat cat CEOs and singing space aliens, all with the goal of bringing new ideas and energy to remote places. So we started out on Vancouver Island. We went down and bought eight horses. That's Paul himself, taken from Dorothy Tateno's documentary, Horse-Drawn Magic, produced by the National Film Board of Canada in the 70s. He looks right at home driving one of these wagons. Good boy, Starty. Wearing this knee-length woolen poncho and felt hat. And we both got the idea of uh, traveling with horses 
and trying to put together some kind of wagon train that would travel around and do theater and uh, music. On the other side of the country with a new baby, the couple began what was originally called Little People's Caravan in 1970. Why theater? Well, basically because we want to um, use theater as a medium for reaching people. It's another aspect of the caravan that we're trying to enrich our lives as well as people's, people that come in contact with us on the road or in our shows. I didn't like the way, our, you know, the alternatives that we had for us. I wanted to have a really strong family and then provide adventure for my family within uh, our lifestyle. Nance from that NFB doc. She's sitting inside the wagon, hand-sewing something, dressed in a red lumberjack shirt and colorful knit hat with a young boy sitting beside her. Especially for the kids, you know, as they grow older, they, they can uh, see things and see other ways of doing things with, within the family, within our life, rather than having to go out and look for that. Paula Nance had three sons, Ilya, Sergio, and Talis, who grew up part of the wagon train, on the road with musicians, horse wranglers, and oddball actors. All three have been involved in the caravan throughout their lives in various ways. As time went on, Caravan found a piece of land near Armstrong, B.C. to spend the winter. Some of them really liked it there, so much that they wanted to stay there and produce theater on that land long term. They're still there to this day. They're called Caravan Farm Theater, but Paul and Nans were dedicated to a nomadic lifestyle. So, the group split in two, with a handful riding off into the night, led by Paul and Nans. Or so the story goes. It's nice to be exhausted. It's not too often you get a chance to be really exhausted for months at a time. <laughs> These are a few of the actors who were on the tour when the NFB doc was made. It looks like a cold morning out on some country road. They're all wrapped in blankets and sitting around a campfire drinking coffee. A few kids are running around. Originally when I joined the caravan, I literally, I, I, I was bored with my job and I had some money in the bank and it seemed like a better, better thing to do for the summer. But then it, it really is a disease. Once you've, you've done it, everything else seems boring. I went back to my old job and it was incredibly boring. Uh, and even city life. Everything's just too sure. This little speech is more than 40 years old, but this guy could be me. You know, we never know what's going to happen. The brake lines are going to go, or a horse go lame, or, you know, there's a crisis every minute. After you come out of this, you're about eight times stronger than when you first came in. Yeah, there's, there's not that many places left in society where you can have adventure. Ready, Bardo? Ready. Ready, Hitch? Ready. Okay, blocks out. Blocks out. It sent shockwaves through the Canadian theater scene. I remember this longing in me, you know, that I, I must run away with this group. I must. I must. This is, you know, real theater. Lane was in the audience at one of Caravan shows in the late 70s. My full name is Lane uh, Coleman. They intersected more than 40 years ago, but the memory is etched into his mind. And uh, the sky was all enveloping. And this story unfolded in real time, like in the light, in the evening light. 
Lane is an actor, director, playwright, and was artistic director of Toronto's Theatre Passe for close to a decade. Uh, in 1978, I was in Alberta as an actor. I was in, uh, went up to Fort McMurray to create a play about uh, the, the tar sands up there. And uh, we, it was called Hard Hats and Stolen Hearts. And I was the only guy in the cast who had a suit, so I played the businessman CEO, the bad guy. So one day, the director of the play says, You know, we're going to go and see this group called the Caravan. You know, I know the director of it, uh, Paul. So it was maybe a two, three-hour drive there and back, and we had to do it in one day. We couldn't afford to stay overnight or anything. So it was a daytime show, so we were okay. And uh, part of the excitement, of course, was the myth of who, what sort of, what will this be like, Right. You know, and you get there and you're so excited by the time you get there and then you see the animals and the horses and the wagons and the actors and the way the whole visual spectacle was. It was very, very, you know, (laughs) it was really (laughs) profoundly moving. This was an experimental time for theatre in Canada. A lot of people had grown up thinking theatre was limited to dusty old plays set in castles and written by Shakespeare and Moliere, performed indoors, of course. But increasingly, young artists and actors were setting out from these small rooms to create their own vision of Canadian theatre. We were all Canadians, like nationalists, um, trying to create an artistic, uh, you know, uh, tradition of Canadian theatre. And at that time, we were either British or you were American. There was almost no Canadian. And uh, this this was a, a, you know, a becoming famous group of Canadians doing original work like that we were dedicated to. And we were small bands, like roving gangs across the country. You know, there was ones in Newfoundland. There was, you know, Toronto, of course, had a good good group. Winnipeg had, you know, we were scattered everywhere, right? Young people, like refugees of Canadian normal life, right? And we were going to do theatre, but we were going to invent our own plays, you know, and create our own acting style. Women's theatre, Indigenous theatre, queer theatre collectives, they were all creating new work in their own voices. Canadians were rethinking how they made theatre, and what a play even was. It's the period that gave birth to work like 1972's The Farm Show, created from interviews conducted by the actors with the residents of Clinton, Ontario. Inspired by this movement, Lane wanted to write his own definition of theatre. Caravan did too. So when he watched that show in the dwindling prairie light that night, it spoke right to his heart. It was an inviting door, a gate, you know, step through here and be happier. You felt like you'd entered another world, right? And it was a world that was familiar to you, but it was also one that uh, you knew was lost forever. It was like a kind of paradise found, you know, and it was brief. And with the galloping around on the horses and the acting and the shouting and the singing and the music and the accordion sound, and there was a fiddle, you know, it, it was pretty ancient stuff. And I remember dancing on the earth. It's one of the few times I ever danced outside on the ground. What was the show about? Gosh, you know, I can't remember. It had a kind of pursuing windmills feeling to it. The theater was important, but the life was primary. 
I remember the contract telling me they didn't promise a lot of money, but they promised a lot of stories. And at the time, I'm like, whatever. And then I'm like, later in life going, that's exactly what they gave me. This is Heather. Okie dokie. Uh, a different Heather than the one we talked to earlier. My full name is Heather Lynn Majuri, and I was with the Caravan Stage Company. I believe it was 1989, I think. 1988. Okay, one of those summers. <laughs> it was one of those summers. Heather got involved when she heard about the caravan while working with Windsor, Ontario's Feminist Theatre, about 18 years after Caravan had started. She sent in an audition tape of her singing and a headshot. Remembering that I have no training in singing whatsoever, right? Like no musical training at all. Um, but I'd always, you know, faked it till I made it in any kind of theatre thing I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> but she got the part. And working well with animals, that was in the job description. I knew I could ride a horse. <laughs> so I think actually I was, I think I was better at riding horses than I was at performing. And I think that's why they kept me. <laughs> I had ridden since I was like two years old. So, um, and I, I was a pretty good barrel racer. Heather's tour really highlights how activism was a critical part of the show's whether audiences liked it or not. On Heather's tour, families and farmers were invited to an evening of song and dance telling the story of the Sandinistas, a Nicaraguan socialist political party, and their decades-long fight against U.S. occupation and invasion, as told through the perspective of a Nicaraguan baseball team. It was called Stealing Home. So we all at different times played as baseball players. So tell us what your show then was uh, telling people about Nicaragua. Well, I don't really know. No. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like part of the problem. <laughs> I think it was. <laughs> there was a bit of confusion with the play. <laughs> so From the performers or the audience? Uh, maybe a bit of both. There were times when we were re rehearsing that I think we were struggling with some of the content and figuring out exactly what was happening. But I do know from my relatives, and there were many, <laughs> that, that they weren't clear on what was really happening in the show. There was a small moment where it didn't happen all the time, but we had a sound effect because at the end, we all uh, died. And uh, we were shot to death in this large arena. So that gives you a sense of the message of the story. And uh, But the, the, the recording was so sometimes too low, so it kind of sounded like we were being typed to death. <laughs> a bit anticlimactic, maybe. Maybe a little. It was very avant-garde. What's the best part about driving across the country uh, in a horse and wagon? First of all, time slows down, so you have a different relationship. So, And for me, being able to do that at home uh, was probably a little bit more surreal than maybe even everybody else. There was me and one other guy that, was, that were from the Ottawa Valley. On my dad's side, he is Algonquin Anishinaabe. And so that part of the journey definitely had a very surreal feeling because now I was relating to things I had taken for granted all my life and just traveled past. There was one night, I remember we were staying in like a grove of like cedar trees and evergreens and things like that. And it was, it was at that time of the summer when you get a lot of fireflies. And the entire little grove area was just filled with these fireflies. And 
I'd seen fireflies all my life. That wasn't the big deal, but it was just so beautiful. And so in this moment, I even drive by that grove now and I have that memory. So where were you scheduled to go and where did you actually go? Okay, so we were supposed to start, we started in Ottawa, and it was going to be a capital-to-capital tour. So we started in Ottawa, and we were going to travel through the valley, then go to the United States, and then end up in Washington, D.C. And then we were going to leave the horses behind, and we were going to fly to uh, Nicaragua, and we were going to do the show in Nicaragua and travel by cattle train. And what did you end up actually doing? We ended up in Pottstown, Pennsylvania, some of us. I think there was just, uh, things were unraveling. There were expenses that occurred that they hadn't planned for. By this point, the horse-drawn caravan has been running for almost 20 years. Traveling by land was becoming increasingly complicated, but Paul and Nans were already working on a solution. It was something they'd been dreaming about since those days in Montreal. But we ended up on Wolf Island where Paul took us out and told us his vision of the boat. Wolf Island is near Kingston, where Lake Ontario connects to the St. Lawrence River on its way towards the Atlantic Ocean and the world beyond. I just remember that we were all walking around and he was explaining his vision for a tall ship and that it would travel, and it would be the caravan in a new way. If anyone could turn fantasy into reality, it was Paul and Nons. And about 40 years later, they'd be sitting on a pair of folding chairs listening to me sing Stevie Wonder. My audition had been at the beginning of December, and by late January, I'd still received no response. Then, two days before Valentine's Day, I got an email that began like this. Trevor, first, let us thank you for being so patient and pleasant. So, here is the current story for Trevor and Caravan. I was invited to come to Sicily for three months to help create their new show as a singing coach and music arranger. And if there was time, I could help out with mask making too. I'd done it. It was happening. Finally, finally, I was going to get to run away with the circus, away from an endless loop of bad gigs and waiting tables in the deep, dark black hole that was swirling beneath my feet. I wasn't going to dry like cement. Well, I guess that brings me around to another aspect of the caravan. I don't think that people should necessarily go to do something like that when they're in desperation. The Heather we first heard from, again, the one who got me into this. But I also knew you enough to know that that environment would probably, you would be suited to that environment if it, if you, if, if it sucked you in, you know, that it could be a turning point. Mm-hmm. I felt like you were like really looking for something. A turning point. <sighs> yeah, it certainly was way beyond what I ever could have imagined. Like Lane said, the caravan is like a gate to another world. There's a feeling of 
fierce, ancient joy, you know, that comes with it, like that it's inevitable. Something inevitable was happening, but eventually the world of the caravan was going to come crashing back into the real world. You remember how this ends, right? Me, 30 meters in the air, hiding in the crow's nest of the ship, and homeland security scouring the deck below, forcing me to make the choice. Do I stay or run from my dream? I mean, I think you're... I think you're panicking and uh, needlessly, so... It's all a big mess. From the Doc Project, this is Caravan. You can hear what happens next right now on Caravan Part 2, Theater Pirates. It's available on the Doc Project podcast feed and on the CBC Listen app. Just scroll to the next episode. Caravan is produced by Trevor Campbell and Julia Poggle. It's edited by me, AC Rowe. Our digital producers are Althea Manassin, Jeff Isaac, and Jonathan Orr. Our senior producer is Jennifer Warren, and our executive producer is Joan Melanson. Special thanks to the rest of the team at The Doc Project, Allison Cook, Tanera McLean, and Kevin Ball. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.